0: Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my chocolate factory. And I should warn you that one of us always tells the truth and one of us always lies. No running in the hallway. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello and welcome to Van's Labyrinth a podcast where we talk about your favorite indie flicks and genre movies. I'm Joseph, and this is my co-host... Lydia! Hello! Hello!
1: <laughs>
0: <sighs> so we've finished watching one of our... Do you, first.
1: Do you not want to address yeah. the fact that we're in the same place right now?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're in the same place right now.
1: <laughs> For the first time ever, Fans oh, Labyrinth true. is coming at you from the same pseudo-recording studio
0: hmm <laughs> We're literally sitting beside each other on a couch. So you can feel that intimacy coming at you.
1: Now I'm a little or uncomfortable. Myself, oh, my God. I kind of want to be in a different room now. Oh, my God. <laughs>
0: <sighs> yeah. We decided to check out Classic Movie this time around. We thought we wanted to do something a little more special or weird or different for us. Out
1: of, yeah, out of the norm. Not There's nothing wrong with classics. But just, like, out of our standard... I guess, because we've been watching a lot of, like, weird, atmospheric, indie horror movies.
0: Yeah. We ended up watching Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, which I had seen when I was super young, but I completely forgot the entire thing. Mm -hmm. So basically, I've never seen it. But you've seen it.
1: Yes. I've seen it a couple times. I went Mm. through a really big Hitchcock phase, and when I was younger, oh, God, like, elementary school and high school, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Like, old reruns were on and stuff. It, It... no, I remember Hitchcock this presents, vaguely. Yeah, so it went on until like the mid to late 90s, I think. And then reruns played like when we were in high school and stuff. So I I used to watch that all the time. Um and I loved it and it was super weird and it it was always on like around the same time as beyond beyond belief factor fiction, which okay. I also loved. I remember this too. Yeah. <laughs> um so I'd always watch Alfred Hitchcock presents cuz why not? Um so I got really obsessed with like Hitchcock. So I remember one time I knew Hitchcock, like a Hitchcock movie, and it was The Birds was playing on space. Everything, every story I have <laughs> about movies I watch is about Space Network. Every single... Canadian
0: network, no one's ever heard of.
1: I know. Of. I know. But every single story I have about movies is about Space Network. So anyway, The Birds was playing, or Birds was playing one night on space, and I had to go out with my parents, and I think it, like we still lived way out in the country, like in an mm. old schoolhouse that was built on like the early 1900s. This
0: is where the horror roots came in
1: the old school house when well, no, that was from my mother but yeah we lived in this creepy ass old school house that my mother is still convinced was haunted so <laughs> we're coming home and just like sounds like i make these stories up and i swear to god i'm not we were coming home god. in the middle of the night and the only reason i remember it was late was because it was a friday night Frightmare on space Networks. So it was always mm-hmm. late when those played mm-hmm. and i really wanted to get in t- like home in time to watch birds because i've never seen a hitchcock movie but i used to watch alfred hitchcock presents all the time okay um, so we were coming home from, like, my grandmother's or something like that. and we got home, and it was late, and it was dark out, and it was raining, and I lived in this old schoolhouse that had a fucking bell tower, and got home, like, just in time to put on birds at, like, 9 or 10 at night, and we sat in front of, like, a legitimate wood-burning fireplace in this creaky old schoolhouse in the middle of a thunderstorm and watched Jesus. birds...
0: Is there's like a scene where they're like in some old buildings uh, and stuff? it's like there's a like church. A yeah.
1: Yeah, it's like a church or something. There's a scene where like the birds descend on the town and Tippy Hedron gets into the um phone booth.
0: And yes, the like I seagulls
1: and crows and shit are slamming into it because Hitchcock is whipping live birds at her and right. like all the school children are screaming and running up the hill to the to the church. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's not a good movie. <laughs> It's really it's not great. It's fun. It's really yeah. fun, but it's it's one of the B movier versions of his.
0: But yeah, and but you know what's funny about Space Center too? Because I was also obsessed with it. But we liked it for like I I liked horror movies too, but like for slightly different reasons. But it definitely shows like a measure of taste of what we mean by like genre movies and and for sure. things like totally. this. Because Space picked up weird weird fantasy stuff. Obviously, lots of sci fi stuff yeah. that was their mainstay. But that's the thing. Even though it's a channel presumably about sci-fi there isn't that that much of it so they really mix it in with all sorts of other thrillers and action and lots of um, fun stuff but always with a twist of that like the supernatural or yeah usually there's something for sure like
1: i I saw ginger snaps for the first time on space which is if you haven't seen it a great canadian horror movie about werewolves really awesome um chris lemke Catherine isabel highly recommend but yeah, I, was, I'd like, I saw Donnie Darko on Space for the first time. Right. I saw Birds on Space for the first time. I used to watch Buffy reruns all the time on Space. And I was really big into Stargate SG-1. Oh, yeah. You I was so big into Stargate I, SG-1. I
0: have, I have friends who still love the show, and I like the show a lot. And it's crazy that it's not on any
1: no, streaming yeah. services. It's I, like I, one of the
0: big, for me, it's one of the big missing shows yeah. on that stuff.
1: Was it a Canadian show? I don't
0: think so. because I don't think so either? Um, what's the main guy was from um,
1: MacGyver. MacGyver, yeah, it's yeah. MacGyver. So it's like
0: I don't see why that Which would was have weird
1: been. when I found that out. Yeah, I felt weird about that. Yes, but yeah, he was a fox though.
0: <laughs> True, He's a
1: handsome dude.
0: Yeah, I was I remember the credits of that, and it would always give him like central, like oh, blah yeah. blah blah, and I'm like. I mean, he's the main character, but like yeah. the other people aren't bored, do show. And then I realized, oh, it's because he's like the signature that brings people into uh, the Yeah, exactly. his point.
1: Exactly. So
0: funny. I never cared for him more than the other characters.
1: He was hot, though. I mean, sure. All the other Stargates were pretty, pretty like weak, yeah, though. Yeah, they're really warm. Stargate Atlantis was probably the shittiest one. Hmm. The only reason it was more memorable than any of the other shitty Starga- Stargate spinoffs was because it was that much shittier. It's just like a level above on the shittiness scale.
0: I I think the thing for me is I watched a ton of the like Star Trek adjacent bad shows like Farscape and oh
1: my god I've Andromeda
0: and yeah, there's like three or four of them. Yeah, and so it's like for me, Atlantis was about the same as them, so it never struck me as being like
1: go back and crazy things. Go back and watch it. It's it's just the like practical effects. Andromeda and, was terrible. Yeah, it's terrible it's just the practical effects like the makeup and stuff is somehow like tremendously shittier oh yeah it's just it's just bad huh. it's very like galaxy quest feeling galaxy quest i saw that for the first time on space network too
0: and no doubt <laughs> so how have you been well
1: we've What's been together on?
0: <sighs> <sighs> now, only only for only for a few days we had a whole week that's true
1: that. that is true we we have been
0: of being alone in the universe
1: I'm always alone, let's be honest. Um, yeah, I mean, you got you got here on Sunday. Mm-hmm. You got here. We came here together. Um, but no, it's been good. I visited my parents on the weekend. I bought two new plant babies. Yeah, honestly, like, not a ton's been going on. I've been working a lot. And then just, like, watching random crap.
0: I heard you got the Mary Trump book.
1: I did! <laughs> I forgot to mention that. I did. We don't usually talk books on here, but I got the, um... I usually don't have
0: much to say about books, but...
1: That makes it sound like I don't read. Um... Yeah. I just, <laughs> look at all the books. You're in my book filled apartment. <gasps> you. I don't appreciate oh it. Oh my God. <laughs> um, I am not very far in it. I think I'm like 35, 40 pages in. Mm. So, not super far. It's, I don't know how I feel about it so far. Mm. It's very like, obviously, I knew it was going to be somewhat anecdotal based on her experiences because, of course, like she's his niece. So, of course, it's going to be anecdotal based on experiences. Yeah. But even 40 pages in, there's already been stuff that she's brought up in the book that is, like, secondhand knowledge. So it's not oh. stuff that she's actually experienced. It's stuff that, like, other people have relayed to her based on conversations they've had. So it's, like, second, third, and fourthhand knowledge, and I feel weird about that, you know? Because mm-hmm. when you play a, ta- a game of telephone and then you add, like, 30 years onto that experience, yeah. how much is going to be accurately represented? So I don't know what to do about that. Uh, apparently, it gets a lot more like intense and explosive like later in the book because okay. the front half is more about like her father's death and like her reputation within the family um, because of his death and and all that stuff. So we'll see.
0: Yeah, the only thing I know about the book really is is that it like was breaking records or doing like really really well really quickly. Yeah, so people was... are very interested in this this particular story, and there's sure. already been so many Trump books come out, but I started. Um, Lindsay Ellis' book, who is a YouTuber I really like. So as people know, like YouTubers, there's a lot of YouTubers who come out with books. Yeah. But most of them are like ghosts written kind of like, this is a day in my life stuff, right? But this isn't what this is. This is Lindsay Ellis writing a science fiction book about kind of the Julian Assange era of putting out um, leaked information from the U.S. government. Okay. But in this case, the leaked information is about aliens, like first contact. I don't want to give anything away, that's basically just the premise, but it's about characters involved in that, you know, day and age, especially relating, it. it. it's set in 2007, but it has this clarity about certain political issues, not the most modern ones, but kind of like where we were at and where right. every, like everyone was thinking. And, you know, it's not the best life I've ever read or anything like that, but I think there is an energy to it that is connected to how millennials are actually thinking and feeling about certain things. Okay. Which, you know, usually in, when it comes to fantasy and science fiction books, you often find that they're not up to date on what the younger generations are. Younger. <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, certain people are, are are thinking about. They're, they're really in their own realm. So it's interesting to see that kind of intersection. I think it was um, done really well. And I'm really enjoying it. But what's funny is I haven't, I don't feel like I've been watching a lot. I was telling you that, like, I finished she Raw instantly, instantly, recently, Mm -hmm. which I was, I think I talked about briefly last podcast. Not that briefly. But yeah, so I I was already watching it back then, right? So it's like, that's the only thing I really, like, so then I finished up the seasons of that. It was really good, um, but I, it's really good, but I don't have huge personal feelings about it. I have things I've argued about with people about, but they're all spoilers for the end, so I can't really do anything about it. Um, but you know, it's just one of, it's just a show that's in that selection of shows, which I am s- surprised are such a big thing in in, in our culture, especially on Twitter and, and certain queer communities and things like that, which is she Steven Universe, Avatar The Last Airbender, Dragon Prince, and others like that. And it's just like this whole slew of these children's cartoons that are made for, um, not made for, but that. A lot of these older um, queer people are very into. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one that I've been, I finished up recently, and I'm not sure I can think of uh, a next one yet. But we'll see when we get back to me (laughs) what what I come up with. Have you been watching anything?
1: Oh God, I had a list, and I think it's in my room. Damn it. There you go. Can I? Yeah. All
0: right. They'll hear all this. We'll keep. I'll keep you entertained.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Vamp. Would you never do every time I tell you to vamp? You never do it. What or is vamp? vamp? Just like talk.
0: How is that? What is vamp? Am I sucking their blood while I talk? Is this the. You
1: seriously have never heard of the term vamping? No. Oh my god. Pretty glamping. It's not at all the same. Vamping. But they're
0: similar in word.
1: Um, is when, like, if you're in a show or something and somebody is delayed, they don't hit their cue. You vamp to fill the time, so you you talk, you tell jokes, you yeah. keep the crowd that warm. That's just basically improv. Kind of, but it's it's unintended
0: mm-hmm. improv.
1: Mm-hmm. So you're vamping to keep the crowd warm until the main act or the guest comes back.
0: Oh, so that would count for like MCs and stuff too. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking like a play when people miss, which I wasn't. I wasn't plays because I was a theater kid, as is no one surprised by. Yeah um but yeah that that's always a freaky thing where people don't show up for their cue on thing i actually remember um i wasn't in the scene but there's a romeo and juliet where it was literally the the where art thou juliet scene and she wasn't ready and nice. so they had she he just kept saying stuff for like an extra oh, five minutes
1: i've been in so many like plays and musicals and stage shows like there have been times where like Things are running long or other people miss their cues and I've had to like literally change in the wings directly behind the curtain just oh, outside of view of yep. the audience into my next costume so that I can fill in the space and essentially vamp. Like just dumb shit. Um. Anyway, we can Ooh, cut on that These notes
0: are so elegant. Minor. Really? Mine are trashy chicken scratch at all times. <laughs> these are work notes and these are what I've watched notes.
1: <laughs> um. Yeah, so let me think about what... So I saw you should have left.
0: Okay, I've never heard of that.
1: Um, it's a newer horror movie. It's based on a book, and it has Kevin Bacon. Okay. And Amanda Seyfried. Do you know who Amanda no. Seyfried is? Uh Amanda Seyfried was in like the Mamma Mia movie with Meryl Streep. Okay. She in In Time with Justin Timberlake. Did see that? Yeah. She's also been on a bunch of other stuff, but those are the two that are on the top Mm -hmm. of my mind right now. So anyway, so they play husband and wife, which is hilarious because Kevin Bacon is like 65 and she's, you know, like our age, 30. Um, But it's a thing. Basically, the story is like she's an actress. His first wife died. She accidentally drowned in a bathtub, but before it was ruled an accidental death, he was considered the prime suspect. So in the public eye, he's still, like, questioned as a murderer, even though he's been cleared of the charge. Um, so him and Amanda Seyfried got together. They're married. They have one daughter. Um, they've been stressed because she's working on a movie. So they decide to take a vacation. And somehow they come across this house, um, really, really nice house in the English countryside. hmm And because she has a movie coming up that she has to film in England in a few weeks, they decide, we'll do that. We'll stay there for like a week or two. And then you'll go and you'll do your filming and I'll take the child back with me to America. So they go and they stay there. And then it just sort of starts, things start devolving within the house where Kevin Bacon isn't sleeping properly. They start getting more and more agitated with each other, similar to sort of like an Amityville horror style. They feel uncomfortable in the house. They don't like it there rooms seem to be smaller than they are at other times they keep finding different hallways and doorways that disappear they can't tell what's dreaming and what's real life and then it kind of goes from there it's terrible
0: oh okay but you know i did it did remind me of something i wanted to (laughs) talk to you about and i still feel bad about this but i meant to bring you Uh, book. We were actually talking about the Mary Trump book and my book and blah blah. So I meant to bring you. It's like a literal textbook, like, uh, like thing. But it's so cool. It's a very like postmodern horror novel called House of Leaves, and it has a similar premise in that it's about a house which has doors which appear and reappear. Yeah, and it's it's just such a cerebral experience because one of the things is like the horror of it doesn't come from the fact that they they they're having difficulty. That, you know, it, they have an oil lamp and they're going through and oh my God, in the in the shadows, there's just like, no, no, no. Like these hallways and these doors, they do literally go into them and they, br- they bring scientific equipment. They try to like do stuff to them and they're like, this is literally just unexplainable mm-hmm. where these come from. And um, they start filming a lot of it. And then what the postmodern aspect is, is they'll film it and all the stuff, all that film, all the...
1: That scared the shit oh out of me. Oh my God. It was just a book tipping over. Oh my God. I don't know if we're gonna keep this or not, but the,
0: the ghost.
1: I I, I, I can't I do this so justice, please. but yeah, it sounded it was the very horror. frightening. Oh
0: my God. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so they just and and so part of the book that you're seeing is is in multiple parts of like the textbook part. There'll be um, commentary, so it's tons and tons of layers of commentary of psychologists, um, professors of different sorts, reporters. It's just, it's very surreal as a take. And the cyclop it's not just that it's, it's all intellectually. I think the actual emotional effect is one of the most horrifying I've ever felt. So it's yeah. really cool. Yeah. But when it comes to my own stuff, actually what's, what's coming to mind, and so maybe we can just talk about it together. The, the one that's stuck in my mind right now is we just watched Portrait of a Lady on Fire.
1: Yes. That sounds right.
0: But it's a French movie about a paint uh, 1760 France. Mm-hmm a painter coming to a kind of, it was like an island or like some kind of exile with a beautiful house. And um, she has to paint the, the lady of the house there who is getting married off to someone in Italy. Mm -hmm. And for me, like the big comparison, it turned out to, and you're going to, you're like, I never want to talk about this again. But my big comparison was my, you know, my favorite gay movie of recent times, probably my favorite movie of recent times, Call Me By Your Name.
1: I just, I need to take a quick pause, and I want to make it clear that I don't hate Call Me By Your Name because it's a gay movie. The way you said that makes it sound like I'm a fucking bigot. Oh my god. I hate talking about that movie because we have talked it to death every time we talk. You bring it up all the time. People,
0: it's very relevant this time.
1: This is the first time! the first time it's been relevant!
0: Poor a Lady on Fire. (laughs) Ends up. As you can probably guess by the comparison with the two ladies falling in love mm-hmm. during this exile. And it has that... To me, what so connects the two is this idea of... Now, calling name is set in close to modern times. But they're in like a, an Italian villa that's very, very old. And they're reading old books. And just the aesthetic of the certain statues and air grounds around them is yeah. very old time. That connects to this world, which is 1760s Europe. And just... Oh, the... The the way that they bring in painting in this uh, movie, I've never seen done in a movie before, where you see her sketching and literally doing the painting. And where she fails and where she does well in certain portraiture is very of the time, what would be considered well or good. It isn't as though, like, it's just chicken scratch or whatever. It's like just, no, no, that is a portrait. It just isn't very good. And this one... And Of that style, of the 1760s style. And then this one is better or worse and whatnot. That feeling of like that canvas and the wood and that old time in there, you know, they have to build fires constantly and how they live. It's just an atmosphere I'm just like so into. And I could just watch that kind of movie like all the time. So yeah, I I had a great time with it. I, you know, I have to admit though, the lesbian relationship didn't do it for me nearly as much as... I mean, but you know, that's just understandable. You know. It is partially interesting. But I, you know, I think they did a a good job of making you convinced that they were falling in love and that how they connected was legitimate. I
1: didn't like it. (laughs) Okay. I didn't like it. I'm sorry. It was I mean, like aesthetically beautiful. I loved the scenery. I loved the shots of the interior of the house. Like it was it was truly, truly beautiful. I did not care about any of the three main characters, like the painter, mm-hmm. the lady of the house, and then the lady's maid, housekeeper, whatever. I, I just, I didn't care about them that much. I didn't care about their relationship. Honestly, of the three of them, the one I liked the best was the lady's maid. Like
0: she... Oh, interesting. She I found her story was, distracting, to be honest, but...
1: I found her story more engaging. Like, it's, she seemed to actually convey the emotions and the trauma that she was going through throughout uh-huh. that story. Whereas, like, arguably the one who should be going through or feeling the most trauma, I guess, would be the lady of the house or whatever. Just because of the circumstances that brought her to the house and the circumstances that brought her to the marriage that she was going into. But yeah. she was very, like, cold and closed off. And I know, like, I mean... That would probably be accurate for everything that she had gone through. But she only had very small moments of warmth when they're Uh supposed to be falling in love. So when they're in those moments, it's great. But the minute they're outside of those moments, she just goes back to being very cold and boring to me. Sure. And then the painter only had like one explosive moment of emotion. Uh And then it just went back to being sort of... Quiet and closed off again. So it was. I don't know. I had a hard time remaining engaged or or really being invested in the relationship and and its progress.
0: I I understand that, and I think like part of it is that it's you know it's one of these movies where things are very subtle and want you to pay a lot of attention. And those movies can can be very you know you have to want to be engaged from the start to make those moments happen. Even when I was trying to do that during this movie, I found it a struggle, but. To me, like, that's true of a lot of foreign films or... Or Yeah, just, like, films that are slower moving. They don't have all the Hollywood tropes of keeping you engaged in that crazy...
1: I know what you're saying, but see, that makes it sound like I didn't like it because I'm, like... No, I... I, But but
0: I'm saying that I even, for me, and I don't watch too many movies of that type, but even for me, I found this one more of a struggle than the average one of that type. So I understand that if, if it isn't connecting with you right away how it would be even more um, It
1: just it felt they felt unnatural like the yeah. characters didn't feel they weren't reacting in a way that I would regard as like a human reaction like even the scene where like her dress catches on fire and she's just like oh, and then faints yeah. for some reason I'm like I don't who reacts like that like it doesn't make any sense
0: mm-hmm.
1: so it's just it was hard for me The pacing, I didn't mind. It was slow, but I don't even necessarily mind that. The music, like the background music was beautiful and the scenery was beautiful. The location, the cinematography was phenomenal. Like it truly was stunning. The framing was gorgeous. I just, I couldn't get invested in the characters and their stories. And that's what made it difficult for me to enjoy.
0: And I think not, not just relating to other movies, but I think for this movie in particular, one of the things they were trying to do with the cinematography was, and like a, a way of portraiture where yes. even in the in the scenes yeah. you would be staring at someone and all you'd be staring at is just their face moving in certain ways or their body moving mm-hmm. in certain ways and it'd be in a way very stilted and, and dialogue low but but it's this effort of trying to show like how do you capture someone when they're just standing still and yeah. like there's a question of that in the movie and I think that's one of its more brilliant moments but it is something that is not that exciting to watch.
1: It, it was kind of dull. I don't know. Yep. Yeah. I didn't love it.
0: What else have you watched?
1: Like, I've rewatched some stuff, but that's not that interesting to talk about, I feel like. I watched. Oh, fuck it. I watched Legally Blonde. Okay. I rewatched Legally Blonde. Mm-hmm. I love Legally Blonde. I really do. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. I mean, if not like, not only have I seen it, but. You were looking at me in a way where you were like. Tell me why I don't. Well, I just, I've I, never I, seen it.
0: Okay, I honestly gave that, because I was like, "You're just saying like I rewatching like," and then you're like, "And I rewatched Legally Blonde."
1: Because everything, uh, everything yeah. I've watched recently, except for what I've watched with you, that we're planning on talking yeah. about the next time we record. Do you want to talk about last week tonight with John no, Oliver?
0: I guess. Yeah, I, <laughs> I just, I just, yeah, I just mistook where you were, where you were going. Because so you're like, I'm like, well, obviously, Legally Blonde is a rewatch, right? and it, for me, what's funny about Legally Blonde for me is it's probably my most rewatched movie ever, not by... <laughs> Necessarily choice, but on one of the channels, it literally would be it's, on every yeah, week. Yeah, it would
1: be always on, on like TBS. Yes,
0: that's the one I was thinking of.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's always the one. All the reruns are on TBS.
0: Or so, like a so yeah, Peachtree TV. It's a very feel-good movie. It just, it's so just yes easy to watch. And it's easy fun. to watch.
1: It's the right amount of comedy. It's relatively intelligent. It's very like feminist. Mm-hmm. In a way that's, that was kind of exciting at that moment in time, because it was like super female empowerment, but it was from like a very girly perspective. It was yeah. saying you can be a powerful, strong woman and you don't have to sacrifice your femininity if you don't want to. If you do, that is also okay, because you see examples of that throughout the movie as well, which I think is awesome.
0: So what prompted the rewatch?
1: Uh, it was on Netflix fair enough <laughs> it was on netflix and honestly i was kind of sad one day and feeling kind of Aww. crappy about myself because my job was really frustrating me yeah. and i had like a million meetings that day and i just wanted to watch something that would make me like feel good about myself mm-hmm. as a woman in the workforce and legally blonde just does that
0: it's it just reminded me of something i was thinking about recently that so many, well, even even people our age, but like, uh, like so many older people that I know, you know, rewatching is such a huge thing as you get older and just like connecting to those things you're familiar with and mm-hmm. just in, enjoying um, that stuff. And everyone has their era of, you know, my parents love 70s, 80s. And early 90s movies, because that's I what too. They're, they're... Well, <laughs> but I'm sure you do like some 2000s movies that, that they don't care oh, about. for sure. All, I'm sure. Right? Yeah. And so it's well, that familiarity from from youth that... Um,
1: Other like than Legally movies. Blonde, I'm, ha- I'm drawing a blank on like 2000s movies that I actually like and do go back and rewatch. I guess Little Miss Sunshine.
0: Oh, yeah. I've Great rewatched movie. a few Love times.
1: I used to be really into Juno. Mean Girls. Oh, yeah. I haven't watched Mean Girls. Until. Oh, Bring It On. Oh, yeah. Love Bring It On. Okay, so there are more that I can think of. Also, one that does not get enough love, Sugar and Spice. I don't know that one. I remember when I came out in cinemas, and it was when there was still a Cineplex in our mall in our hometown. Do you remember okay. like way back then? Sure. I saw it there on, like, a cheap Tuesday or something. And it's, like, a <laughs> This is just a personal journey into our Canadian childhood. <laughs> right? A, like, a group of cheerleaders, like, four or five cheerleaders... And I swear this is like a precursor to movies like Spring Breakers and The Bling Ring and stuff like that. But it's a group of cheerleaders essentially decide to rob a bank. Like that's basically the premise. But it's the same kind of humor as movies like Jawbreakers, Heathers, um, and even Bring It On. Mm -hmm. It's not not perfect, but it's very funny and it's like kind of an interesting dynamic where you have these like popular pseudo-ditzy girls really into cheerleading into having the perfect body and dating the quarterbacks. And then they decide like, because they are down on their luck or they have some problems to rob this bank and they need to figure out like how to get away with the bank robbery. And it's fun. Like it's genuinely funny and it's relatively entertaining. It's, I would assume at this point it's probably got some pretty problematic jokes, but for the time period it came out, it was actually a really great movie. It did not get the reception that it deserved considering Less than 10 years later, you had movies like Spring Breakers that were like lauded as these mm. like indie masterpieces, and they're essentially the same kind of movie with a little bit more in your face antics.
0: Hmm. I do remember a movie I, I talked to you about, so lot, but this is like a dumb story, and I oh my god! But Midnight Meat Train,
1: yes, <laughs> went
0: to watch the my family. Okay, what <laughs> kills me about this is we went through so this dumb. huge short list. Oh, we could do Midsummer because my family hadn't seen it. Oh, or God, that was yeah, Suspiria, the new the new one. I John could see there. your
1: family not liking that.
0: That's true, but we I, we had some cool options and all stuff. And then I'm like, okay, but I haven't seen this one. But maybe Midnight Meat Train because was like there's a photographer involved. I don't know. Maybe I'll like it.
1: You assumed it was going to be like Nightcrawler. Yeah, and I know like that's that. exactly what you were thinking. Um,
0: and so. Yeah, we started up, and that movie, it's like, it was kind of good for my family. I mean, it's it's so bad that maybe it's not worth it for my family, but it's like, no one was like offended by anything, and like the storyline is followable, but I was just like so upset by how just blase the storyline is. Like, it's literally like, what if there was a subway killer who made people into meat or whatever? It's like, what? Like, yeah. how is this a storyline?
1: <laughs> Honestly, I would say like the better version of that, like it's not, it doesn't take place on a car or a subway, but like the better version of that would be something like The Collector, which is also a slasher, but it's oh, a little yeah, bit more yeah. psychological. So there's like The Collector, I to, The Collection. Yeah.
0: I had a friend who really wanted to watch that with me, so I, may, I might take him up on the offer something.
1: Honestly, it's really good. Um, mm. It's sort of the later Saw movies with a little bit more intellect in them. You know, so it's like a Saw 3, but with the a little less gross out and the intelligence of a Saw 1 is sort of where I would put it. But it's quite good. That actually reminds me of a story, though. So I love Train to Busan. Yes. I don't know if you've seen it.
0: I still haven't seen it. Oh, my God. But I know you've recommended it to me many times.
1: It's so good. I have recommended it to you. I just
0: zombies. I'm so over zombies. I know, I know,
1: but it's not so much about. I mean, obviously, there's zombies, there's boatloads of zombies, but it's not so much about the zombies. It's about the interpersonal relationships of the people on the train as they fight their way through to survive. So essentially, like they're going from, I think Seoul to Busan, and the outbreak occurs in Seoul when they get on the train, and one infected person gets on the train before it leaves. So the outbreak is steadily moving up the train, and as that happens, the people in one car realize what's happening and start trying to move themselves ahead. Fights break down, they start falling apart, certain factions of the group come together, and they form these interpersonal alliances and try to protect each other, get each other to the end of the train so that they can survive to Busan, and hopefully find a safe haven. Mm. Um, so that's basically, like, the whole point is just this, like, survivalist group trying to form essentially a tribe. It's amazing, and I think it's probably one of the best zombie movies ever made. Because it's not just, it's really not about the zombies at all. They're just a plot device. But I, I had gotten my dad to watch it, because I was like, this is the best zombie movie I've ever seen. It's incredible. Um, and it's just a really beautiful, like, character story. Mm-hmm. Um and you really really fall in love with these people, so I got him to watch it and he when he first watched it he loved it like he loved it and he told me the next day he was like I actually really really enjoyed that I'm not really a horror movie person but I really really liked it and I knew he had loved World War Z like my parents were okay weird yes people. I remember
0: you telling me this what a strange movie to it
1: on no and they're both obsessed with it they probably watched it like I don't, seven I don't. times. It's because Before that it was Saving Private Ryan for well, years That's
0: understandable
1: Four years mm-hmm. I grew up watching Saving Private Ryan like twice a fucking year <laughs> So when it switched to World War Z I was like thank Christ And now it's gone on too long But yeah they, they loved it so I was like okay You'll probably like this so I got them to watch it My dad loved it But recently I was talking to him about it And he was, he was saying one of the only Horror-ish movies he likes is World War Z And I was like well you liked you know, train, train to busan. busan and he was like yeah i did but like world war z is just better and i'm like how so he started <laughs> explaining it being better because you see how each country reacts which is true okay. like, if you watch world war z you do see how each individual country reacts differently to the virus mm-hmm. you see that america descends into chaos you see that Canada just sort of like semi-blocks itself off, but is relatively neutral and does accept refugees, which seems honestly pretty, pretty accurate. Oh, virus. It seems pretty fucking accurate to Canada. <laughs> um, you see that like Britain or like the UK Ireland area spends all of its time trying to find a cure. So they have one of the heads of the WHO, I think in Scotland, they spend the entire time just locking themselves in labs trying to find a cure to this virus. Israel builds a wall completely around themselves to try and keep the infected out. But they accept refugees from Palestine despite the, like, ish, like intergovernmental inter-govern- issues. Um, so it is it is genuinely really interesting. And then the virus starts, I think, in, like, China or something. Um, okay. I'm pretty sure.
0: Yeah.
1: And my dad was explaining all this. And I'm like, yeah, because World War Z is literally the movie Contagion. Mm-hmm just with zombies. And he was like, no, it's like way more interesting than that, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Dad, watch the movie Contagion. Yeah, You're explaining the exact same premise. It starts in China. It moves through the world because of airports. America descends into chaos. Western Europe tries to find a cure and the Middle East starts walling themselves off. That is the movie Contagion. They just added zombies. It's the same fucking movie. (laughs) this is why training to Busan is better. And he was like, no, you're wrong. I'm like, Makes me rage. Well, I mean,
0: yeah. But to be honest, so much of what makes someone like a movie has to do with details that are impossible to just explain, like, on a plot level, right? It has to do with how the actors act, how the no, thing how the scenes go through. And Contagion, while it does go through the plot points, pretty interestingly, there's something very dead inside in that whole movie. Like, all the acting and all the actual... Just like one of No scenes them. are interesting. Like, it's so... I-
1: don't agree with you. I really think the Jude Law scene is like the Jude Law scene is kind think of iconic. Really interesting. I think it's really interesting how he goes around trying to sell this pseudo drug to yeah. like as a cure when it really doesn't do anything at all. Um, and he's just trying to make a profit off of a pandemic. Like, yeah. I genuinely think that that is a really interesting plot point. And I th- yes. think Jude Law did it very well. Like, he yes. does seem like the like slimy kind of car salesman guy. He's like, like sort of charming but there's like this undercurrent to him. But overall, yeah, the movie's pretty lame. I can't even think who the lead is in that. Is that Matt Damon? I can't remember. I feel like it's Matt Damon, but it might be just an equally bland white man.
0: Um it was there's a lot of big name actors in it though.
1: Well, yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow. That's yeah. why I said just like Gwyneth Paltrow, cause she dies in the first like 15 minutes of that movie. Yeah. They used the same prosthetic head that they made for 7, even oh. though they never showed the prosthetic head in 7.
0: That's a weird tidbit. That's Yeah. Oh my there's,
1: there's my weird fun fact. Yeah. They created a prosthetic head for the movie Seven of Gwyneth Paltrow in case they decided to show you what was in the box. They, who was it? Fincher that did Seven? Yeah. They elected not to show you what was in the box because it creates a little bit more discomfort, I yeah. think, not seeing it. Whereas seeing the head would create shock value and he didn't want that. Um, but the head, because it was a perfect replica of Gwyneth Paltrow's head, they reused it in the scene in Contagion where she died because yep. it was easier than having to create an entire new form.
0: Seven is an interesting about movie that. to me because I, I really liked it, but there's something so corny about it when you're following the seven deadly sins and I even the whole ending just feels so over the top. And so I've never, it's never really like solidified as like, either good or bad in my mind, it's kind of like, it's not even like a guilty pleasure. It's just That would some... be a weird guilty pleasure. Well, I don't know. There's, there's for aesthetics or something, I don't know. Yeah,
1: I guess. I think, I think, I mean, it's a beautifully shot movie. As disturbing sure. as it is, like, it is a beautifully shot movie. And it's very well acted, but there were so many similar psychological thrillers yes. that came out in the 90s and early 2000s that, like, Seven is the best of them, by far, But it does kind of get a little lost in the fray, especially since Morgan Freeman was in about like four of them. Mm -hmm. It does get a little lost in the fray, right? Like you've got Taking Lives, Kiss the Girls, Along Came a Spider, Seven.
0: Wow, you remember a lot of these more than I do. (laughs) I really
1: like those movies. Taking Lives (laughs) was great. It had Angelina Jolie. Um, Along Came a Spider had Ashley Judd. Kiss the Girls, I think, also had Ashley Judd. Um, And then there's one more that had Angelina Jolie as well. And it had Angelina Jolie with Denzel Washington. Oh. Denzel Washington played Alex Cross in it after he was crippled from being shot in the spine. Okay. I can't remember the name of that one. It's something Bones. Hmm. Broken Bones or something.
0: Okay. I don't know. it. I don't think.
1: Pretty good. It's not great, but it's pretty good. Nobody wears gloves in those movies. None of the police officers. <laughs> they not. go to investigate anything. They never have fucking gloves on. They just touch guns touch evidence. They're like, oh my god, what's this? It's like, nobody, like, put on gloves. We know fingerprints exist at this point. It's not 1962.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Did you have any more fun stuff to talk about?
1: Um, probably not.
0: <laughs> Alright, get into the depression. You know, Get like, to the vibe.
1: I don't do anything. I have my plant babies. That's it. Okay. Yes, so, we watched Psycho. We watched the 1960 version. I was really tempted, because you hadn't seen it in so long, to just put on the remake version no, and oh see if god. you would notice. I would notice. Or, like, how long it would take you to notice. I was hoping it would take you until Vince Vaughn came out on the screen as Norman Bates. Oh my Bates. god, Vince Vaughn,
0: no. <laughs> I swear
1: to god, the remake, it's Vince Vaughn oh as Norman god. Bates. It's so, it's actually really bad. I feel yeah. bad for Vince Vaughn. It's really hard to take him seriously. like yeah, y- it's a young Vince Vaughn.
0: I, well, bring that to Norman Bates. I actually think... The number one thing that surprised me about the movie was how good Norman Bates's performance is, which you said the actress name, but I think Anthony Perkins. It. Anthony Perkins was just, from the get-go, Handsome, he, has, yeah. he has a lot of range across the movie. Yeah. And from the get-go, he is actually charming. He is truly yeah. charming. He feels good. And then it's very slow and careful descent as, as he has a longer, longer conversation with the main actress,
1: Jennifer Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis's mother.
0: And you get those really good lines that are bringing to evidence the psychology that's going to be talked about in the movie.
1: Yeah. And um,
0: that was probably my favorite part.
1: The one thing I love, when he speaks to men in particular, it happens occasionally when he gets nervous around Jennifer Lee's character, but when he speaks to men in particular, he stutters. Stutters, yep. When he is intimidated by a man who is at a stronger, like, status than him in some way, whether he's taller or is in a position of authority, he has a stutter. And you don't see that at any other point. It only occurs when he's intimidated. And I think that's really interesting. And it highlights just the sort of de-evolution of the character. Because when he's having these short conversations with Jennifer Lee, he's very charming. He seems very, like, personable and really interesting. When he has longer conversations with her, he seems a little disturbed, but not unhinged. And Mm -hmm. he's still charming enough that it placates her and she's not entirely nervous. But then when he speaks to men for longer periods of time, he gets agitated, he gets intimidated, he stutters, um, and he's noticeably uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think that's, like, a really interesting dichotomy.
0: Yeah. I think another thing that was roaming around in my mind, uh, especially by the time we got to the end of the movie because of Jennifer, Lee. Jennifer Lee's sisters in the movie, mm-hmm. her character comes off as a very strong, independent woman yes. character in it. And because there's a kind of, you don't really know where to go with it, with the Jennifer Lee's character and then the mom being the other female character you see. Because those two have aspects that can go either way. Um, mm-hmm. with whether they're well portrayed or really problematic uh, things like this. And so it was really that um, the sister coming in and, and really being like, no, no, no I'm going to come with you with the guy yeah. to search this thing and really solve this problem. And she was, you know, with them the whole time. And I just found that really intriguing. And it made me think that, yeah, in a lot of Hitchcock, there's always at least one strong woman involved in this, yeah. in this story. And... It's just, it's an interesting tidbit that, you know, uh, you know my friend Cody has talked about many times that one of the things that attracts him to horror is that that's where you get a lot of strong women characters compared to a lot of other genres where that isn't as common of a thing.
1: It's true. Just, I mean, even, they're not perfect female characters depending on the era that you go to in horror. There are, like, problematic portrayals of women. The, like, virginal sure. aspect being the most common. I mean, you even see that in Psycho, I would say. Where mm-hmm. Jennifer Lee's character is more, like, sexually overt. She gets hit on aggressively. She is murdered relatively quickly by a man that she was sort of possibly flirting with. Um, she had an illicit relationship. Whereas mm-hmm. her sister, who is just, like, an independent, strong woman, doesn't have a man in her life, has a good job, is sort of portrayed as, like, this this powerful kind of figure. But her sexuality is never called into question. So, I mean, it's it's not a perfect portrayal of, like, a strong woman, but I would agree. Like, horror is a place where you would go and you see predominantly stronger women, even if the tropes aren't perfect. Mm-hmm. And I always love that as well, because a lot of horror films, especially when you look at, like, slashers or murder mystery type horror films, the central figure is oftentimes a woman.
0: Yeah. But on the other hand, in this movie, Norman Bates, again, awesome character, great things. And I, and I really enjoy the twist when, I mean, is this movie we can spoil? Or should we... Came out in
1: 1960. I know, had two sequels and a remake, plus Bates Motel. I the do... Tel- the television show. Yeah. People don't know it, like... Yeah. That's a them problem, I think.
0: So we'll spoil it. The portrayal of his mother, who's dead, is done by him. I mean, you don't, you don't actually, it could, it's probably another actress I, doing the I voice because it's the so, voice is it's another so, woman.
1: Um, I don't, I don't think feminized. it's Anthony Perkins. If it is Anthony Perkins, that's genuinely impressive, but I think it's another voice actress. But yeah,
0: in, in our day and age where, um, there's so much that we're, discovering isn't the right word, but so much that is bringing to the fore about gender expression and identity and these things. I don't want to say it's outright problematic. Like I don't feel outright offended by it. Mm -hmm. Because, especially by the end, the explanation they give, while almost certainly not a real thing, is there's an interesting uh, psychology to it that isn't trying to feed on any group.
1: I don't know if I would agree with you. I I would say it's an imperfect portrayal of the psychological condition I'm thinking of, but I don't think that it's a psychological condition that doesn't exist. Like, I would liken it to something like DID, so dissociative identity disorder, also known as multiple personality disorder. Um, Which I know is heavily debated between psychologists and psychiatrists of whether it actually exists or not. But it's relatively accepted as a genuine psychological disorder, typically rooted in some kind of childhood trauma that causes a psychotic break or a break in your personality and formulates a new personality. And as we find out by the end of the movie, there is some kind of psychological trauma between... Norman losing his father in childhood and the type of relationship he had with his mother in between his father dying and her taking on a new lover. Um, Because there is an inappropriate level of closeness that's hinted at, but not overtly described. Mm -hmm. So I think you could make an argument that it's just heavily ahead of its time in portraying that type of psychological condition, not necessarily perfectly because of course, People with DID are not necessarily, or even commonly, violent. Like mm-hmm. people with mental illnesses are not commonly violent. Yeah. So that would be the problematic issue. But beyond that, I would say it's just a ahead of its time in the fact that it chooses a psychological condition that was very unknown at that point.
0: Mm. Yeah, the explanation they give on the end give at the end is at least in world understandable. Mm-hmm. Whether or not. It's exactly how it happens and how our best science now understands how it happens. Yes,
1: I mean, again, you have to place this in the time of the 1960s where mental health was, you know, not talked about as much. There wasn't a lot of investigation into it. You didn't have too many people who specialized in it, and you didn't have a lot of people who took it seriously.
0: There's a sense in the movie, too, of, like, how domestic troubles work. Because even in the, the bank scene at the beginning, where she talks to the other clerk or receptionist there... And she's talking about taking tranquilizers, mm-hmm. like right away. And so there is this like interesting like take on drugs and getting married, and then immediately you get tranquilizers, and like that's how the it 60s works. Sixties
1: was a weird time. Um,
0: well, but just like this idea of like what it meant to be married at that time, and and that's a theme because she had she was just coming from her illicit relationship, which I never maybe you can talk. I never quite understood what was going on there. He was she was seeing a guy on a semi regular basis, mm-hmm. and he's. Already married, or he just wouldn't commit. Recently divorced. Okay, recently divorced.
1: Um, and the divorce ruined him financially. Right. So he is paying alimony. She got the house. He is living in an apartment behind a hardware store, mm-hmm. or above a hardware store. Um, and he has basically like every paycheck he gets immediately goes to his ex-wife. So he has no money. So he doesn't want to get remarried and thrust this woman into a life of poverty.
0: Right. and so, But she's not married or attached no. otherwise. So she's not, neither of them are cheating on anyone.
1: No, like no. It's just, you know, sex outside of marriage was uncommon and not mm-hmm. talked about in the 1960s. Like a woman's sexuality wasn't a thing that was ever really discussed. And a divorced man or a divorced woman had a, a sort of different social status in the 60s because divorce was so uncommon. Mm-hmm. So that would also be, like, a bit of a social stigma for her to be dating a recently divorced man. So there are a lot of reasons why, like, the social stigma would make it difficult for them to publicly date. Um, And it's part of the reason why he didn't necessarily want to be introduced to her sister, why he didn't necessarily want to be seen in public. It was nothing against her. It was the fact that it could ruin her socially.
0: Hmm. I'm just trying... Yeah, I'm trying to just connect up the dots because then... So then she steals the money. Mm-hmm. That happens early in the month. So she steals a whole bunch of money in today's money, like around three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yes,
1: forty grand in the movie, which yeah. with inflation would be around three hundred fifty grand.
0: So she she steals that, brings it to a hotel, um, and that's how Norman Bates meets her. And th- you're explained at the end that the reason he kills her is because the mother side of him, that's in his DID, is jealous of his sexual attraction to her that he would leave her
1: yeah so essentially it's hearkening back to that complicated and inappropriate relationship norman had with his mother when she was still alive Mm -hmm. there's a sense of overbearingness and the fact that the mother leaned on him more like he was a partner or a husband than a child so they don't explicitly say there was some sort of like inappropriate sexual interaction between the two of them but the relationship itself was closer to that of like partners than mother and child So, when Norman's mother took on a new lover, a new male companion, he became enraged and jealous of the relationship because he felt cast aside. He no longer had that status in the household as her partner. He was back to being her child and he couldn't handle it. So, at that point, he had all, like it's explained, that he was already disturbed in some way. Not necessarily that he had killed before, but he was problematic in some way that's not understood. So he fully broke down after feeling tossed aside and becoming so incredibly jealous of his mother's new partner that he killed them both. Yeah. Um and then made it out to seem that the mother killed her lover and then killed herself because she was so devastated. Right. So he recreated this persona of his mother by stealing her corpse and keeping it in the home, keeping it preserved and then eventually breaking his personality in a way where at times he was Norman, at times he was his mother, and he would be able to have conversations with her where she would speak back to him, whether out loud or in his mind. So his assumption was that if he was that jealous of his mother having a companion that would be above him, he believed that she would would feel the same way. So if he ever found a companion or appeared to be interested in another woman, she would fly into the same jealous rage that he did and kill his potential lover.
0: Yeah. And so when I had earlier said about how the conflicts feel domestic in a certain way, it is about these family and marriage dynamics. And it's interesting because I think... In modern times, a lot of the psychology of characters is now tied to greater societal problems in a more direct way, where they're saying, like, well, you're a lot allied with this political sphere or this type of thing. And this movie really keeps it to just people wanting to have sexual relationships with other people or people in domestic situations where there's a struggle there. And so I think it's interesting to see things from this different perspective. And maybe the politics just wasn't thought of in the same way. At that time.
1: Politics wasn't heavily discussed in film at that time. There was a lot of like strange political unrest at the time that Hitchcock was making movies. So it was either politics was overtly used and that became problematic and put you on a specific radar. Or politics was just not discussed at all. And I would say some of that had to do with post-war government propaganda. Some of that had to do with the Red Scare, which we've discussed. um, And the Hollywood Blacklist, which made it very difficult to discuss anything from a... Government critique standpoint. And some of it was just that sort of post war, we won the war kind of boom. So everyone was feeling very strongly about the American pride. And you don't want to make a film that is critiquing America when everyone in America is falling back in love with the country after a long and hard war, right? Mm -hmm. But I think major studios at that time were linked very heavily with the government and what could and could not be shown might be discussed under the table, but that was very much there.
0: I was just thinking, too, that when I say we have a different relationship, to, I just think, to me, there feels like much more of a sense in which people's psychology and the the politics of the whole are much more connected or intertwined, in a way, where we think, to use an obvious example, like in a movie like Joker, it's, there's political implications to his sure. psychological yeah. thing. Whereas in, in Psycho, it really sticks to... The domestic situation and psychology as psychoanalysis or psychology as a domestic problem.
1: It's very person to person. Mm -hmm. Like that whole movie is very character driven. Yeah. There's very little to do with outside forces. Like the only real outside force you have is the money. Like that's your outside force. That's the driving force for Jennifer Lee's character. And even that, I would say you can boil that down to a personal relationship. She was stuck, she was frustrated, she's being hit on by inappropriately older men. The one relationship that she has is fully stagnant because of lack of money, so she feels the need to escape. But again, that's your only outside force, is the financial aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything else is very interpersonal drama and character-to-character relationships. And I think you see that a lot, again, in movies of that time period, because again, talking about your government or negatively critiquing your government was just not a thing that was done as much. I mean, you see it occasionally, but a lot of the movies that do discuss government overtly are not so much a critique on the status of government in that day. They're either looking to the future or they're positively showing the government. So, like, one I'm thinking of is something like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is Jimmy Stewart, who's in Rear Window,
0: and... Not a movie I've seen.
1: It's not not great. But a lot of that movie is just about, like, essentially trying to get a bill passed. So there's, Mm. like, a really long scene of him filibustering, I don't know if you mm-hmm. know what filibustering yep. is. Yeah. So he's he's literally just talking. And this was in a time period where filibustering you you actually had to physically continue talking the entire time. So it's it's basically supposed to be him yelling about his bill or whatever for sixteen hours or something ridiculous straight. Oh my god. It's it's fuck it's just so exhausting. He's very melodramatic. Like I like Jimmy Stewart. I liked him a lot in um Rear, Rear Window. window but he's so melodramatic like there's someone like an Anthony Perkins who who is very understated and has a lot of interesting, expressive range Mm -hmm. without being over the top. Jimmy Stewart is the complete opposite. Ah, He's like a pantomime of Anthony Perkins where he he goes big. And
0: yeah, this would have still been the era where, you know, silent films were descending and and theater was still big. So it's like that form of acting was still very, very very
1: common. Yeah. Yeah. Very common. Big facial expressions, really like large smiles, like Mm. loud, loud talking, which is super common for theater it does not work in film um and it's very awkward so it's it's just not great and that's that's common in a lot of like positive government films of the like 1960s and 60s but then there are a lot of films that again are very character and plot driven but the subtext of the film is sort of a critique on the government and those are the ones that you're seeing coming from like your Hollywood blacklisters mm. during that time period but yeah
0: Yeah, I think coming back to Psycho for a moment, the filming itself, too, is just, it's so, we were saying about about it during the movie, it's so well done, like, very well executed. Like, each scene makes sense, the way things are edited together makes sense, the composition of shots are, there's variation, but it's not too crazy, and, like, there's just scenes that stick out to me, like, when you see a piece of the motel, and and then in the side of the frame, you see the house, right in the background. But things just are well composed. But things just line up nicely as you're going through the movie. Or where um, you're seeing her driving towards the motel. And you're just watching her face and hearing what the conversations of people who would be chasing her might might be having or are having or what she's thinking. And you don't know quite what the thing is. But there is definitely an element of psychological processing constantly in Hitchcock in general and in this movie in particular. Where... It's funny because you rarely hear telepathy of their thoughts, but you very much get a sense of being or caring about their psychology, like, yes. uh, throughout the movie. And I think that, at the music and everything, it adds to the atmosphere of where even though it can be slow at times, everything is meaningful toward that psychological connection with the characters. Characters yeah. feel so rich in this.
1: I agree. Um, especially, of course, Norman and yes. Marion. Marion Crane, who's uh, Jennifer Lee's character, because you spent, well, you spend the most time with Norman, really. You see him interacting with the most characters. Um, And then Jennifer Lee, Marion, you spend pretty much the first 30 minutes of the movie entirely with with her in some form or fashion. So you, you feel the most connected, I would say, to the psychology of those characters. Yeah. Um, especially because you have that overlay of like an inner thought process where you're not a hundred percent sure if it's what people are talking about back home from where she came from, or like you said, her projection, her projection of what they would be saying about her now that she's taken off. I like to think that it's, that it's both. Yeah. That she's accurately processing what people's reactions would be because she knows those people so well, mm-hmm. her coworkers, her sister her lover but even even without those sort of overlays of inner thought processes i think you get quite a good understanding of like her lover her sister and the private detective even yeah Um, because there's there's sort of an intuition and a strength in that private detective and he doesn't feel dismissive to the sister He is in a way where he doesn't want to bring her along, which I understand because it's just another person you have to be concerned of protecting. Whereas if he goes alone, you know, he he understands the risks that he is taking and he doesn't feel like he's putting somebody else in that position. But for the most part, he doesn't seem dismissive of their concerns, of why they don't believe she would just completely disappear, why they Mm -hmm. believe that they can convince her to come back. Like he's fully understanding and he's there to get to the bottom of this mystery which I think is really interesting
0: I uh I liked too how Norman Bates is you know compared to a lot of psychopaths or characters because actually just the hotel it reminded me of No Country for Old Men a bit just there's like money going to hotel situation and but the uh, psychopath in that movie is much more meticulous
1: Javier Bardem
0: yeah and you know this 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 modern psychopath like the gone girl and him and there's there's a bunch of these characters who just have mo they're not perfect actually she goes to a hotel too oh my yeah. god but that they that they are really covering their tracks so norman Bates is an interesting mix where he because he has the split mind he's kind of like i'm going to cover up for my mother but he doesn't do like a perfect job and he's like definitely missing something. like he you can tell he didn't plan this at all. He wasn't
1: yeah, they were figuring fully out. crimes of passion. Yeah, and yeah. so that's
0: an it's it, it's a cool to see this older take on that which isn't the fully um monstrous, terrifying, just crazy crazy person. Yeah. Thing. completely devoid the, of empathy. Yeah, ne- but neither is it the nihilistic perfectly uh, perfect assassin type. Yeah. which is popular now. And so I just thought it's a nicely balanced character. I'm not saying it's new or innovative or anything like that, but you know, it just, even looking back, I just think it's well, well, well well put together character.
1: And I think in a lot of ways that like,
0: it's more realistic too.
1: Yes, I agree. And that's what I was going to say. Um, The like completely devoid of empathy Doing everything they can to cover their tracks, very, very men- meticulous and incredibly intelligent type of like psychopath that you see in movies like Gone Girl, No Country for Old Men, etc., is very much a Hollywood portrayal of that kind of mental illness. Psychopathy or sociopathy aren't actually diagnoses.
0: I guess the real life. Like reference. psychological
1: diagnoses. Mm, um, right you would have more like antisocial personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder or BPD, or if it's a younger person, oppositional authority disorder, which is sort of a precursor to one of the three I just mentioned. Um, And those three mental illnesses can have aspects of what we consider a sociopath, like a uh, sociopath or a psychopath where they can be meticulous, highly intelligent, low on empathy like, uh, out for their best interests, those kinds of things, which mm-hmm. what we consider a psychopath. Quick to anger, meticulous, those kinds of things. But they also come with a host of other symptoms. So you can have, like, antisocial personality disorder and not be a murderer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But you can also have antisocial personality disorder and be closer to what is portrayed in those kinds of movies. But typically the serial killers that we have caught have sort of a de-evolution and they're not necessarily that meticulous. Like you have serial killers like BTK or Dahmer or John Wayne Gacy, those kinds of killers where there are elements of being meticulous and there are elements of being like narcissistic, but then there are elements of like Gacy had a wife and children and was like a perfectly normal seeming family man. And there's an ability to mask that. Dahmer had a complete and total de-evolution, and that's how he was caught. He He was completely falling apart and was very easy to catch at that point. You have Ted Bundy, who was incredibly charming, and I would say very similar to a Norman Bates character, where he was charming and kind and relatively handsome, but he would become aggressive, manic or unhinged, depending on the opportunity in the moment. So I I actually would say that in a lot of instances, in comparison to the serial killers that we've seen in history, Norman Bates is a much more realistic portrayal of a serial killer than someone like Rosamund Pike's character from Gone Girl, or um, the assassin in No Country for Old Men, or any of the other like serial killer type characters we've seen in movies today. Hmm.
0: I, I realized, too, like, probably the, the more close up is to American Psycho and to show that jump to a different kind of psycho. And that, and that became the modern
1: yes. idea of it. American Psycho, I think, is a really interesting one. And I would love for us to watch it and do an um, mm. in-depth conversation on it. Because I think American Psycho is really interesting based on the fact that you don't actually know if he is a murderer in any way. You don't know if he's ever killed anybody by the end of the film.
0: I mean, he chops someone up with an axe during a scene. He's
1: alive at the end of the movie.
0: Oh, does that happen? Yeah. Oh, weird.
1: Yeah. You don't know if any of them... By the end of the movie, you don't know if any of the murders happens. He confesses to his lawyer over the phone and then finds out that Paul is fine. Paul's a
0: Weird. I don't remember the ending being like that.
1: Yeah. No. You don't know if he's actually actively killed a single person or if it was an entire psychotic break that happens over the course of a week. Hmm. Yeah. You have no concept of whether or not he killed the prostitutes or sex workers. Apologies. You don't know if he murdered the sex workers, murdered that homeless person. Um, the only thing you do know is that Paul is apparently ostensibly fine by the end of that picture. So it's really interesting look at, like, an internal psychotic break based on the pressures of corporate life. Right. And the bottled up rage that he refuses to express because he has to seem buttoned up at all times.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. There is a societal aspect to that one in a way yes. that... It doesn't seem to be as as clear in um, Psycho, and but there's another one I was thinking of. I'll I'll have to get back to on it, but I, that I realized I don't think has Hannibal, not Hannibal, but the original one, Signs of the Land. Signs of the Lambs. Where again, it's not it's not necessarily domestic, but there is that modern psychopathy style mm-hmm. where he's sort of meticulous in this case, like highly educated instead of being corporate or highly refined or whatever. What do you call that? Like gentlemanly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And but yeah, I, I I would be curious to relook at those ones like American Psycho and um, Silence of the Lambs to see the if if there is societal implications uh, or or domesticity or like more personal problems as the explanations going on.
1: Again, I think Silence of the Lambs is an interesting choice for you to make here because in Silence of the Lambs, you never see Hannibal Lecter kill anybody. Hmm. Hannibal Lecter is already in prison. Yes, he doesn't murder anybody, and you don't really know anything about his history other than he was a cannibal. And right. before but you that, we do he was get that, a psychiatrist. In, in later movies, you get that in later movies, but not in Silence of the Lambs. Right. It's never addressed in Silence of the Lambs. The only thing you have is his relationship and the way he relates to people, especially Clarice. Yes, um, Jodie Foster's character. The serial killer in that is Buffalo Bill. Yes, And Buffalo Bill follows a lot more similar of a serial killer structure to the serial killers we have caught yes. today, where he has a fixation or a need, he has a clear psychological disorder, he handles it in a specific way, very similar to like a Gacy where he's essentially making skin suits. Also similar to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is also based on John Wayne Gacy. And then he has a very clear de-evolution throughout the film where he starts to fall apart and stops hitting his meticulous marks and getting his needs out of his kills. So he becomes more aggressive and intense at the rate at which he kills. And that's eventually what gets him caught. So that's exactly the standard narrative of every serial killer we've seen through history at this point. Whereas Hannibal, while he is shown, is very refined, very meticulous, what we consider the Hollywood psychopath, you actually don't know what he's done, how he kills, what type of a killer he is, or how many kills he's done. Yeah. He's just already in prison, and he's a psychiatrist and a right. serial killer, So he can, or a psychologist and a serial killer. So, so there's a meta-narrative going on. Yes, there, so he can get into the head of that killer and help Clarice find him faster before he can kill yeah. too many women
0: and it's it, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was another one I was thinking of because of the representation of, of dead bodies and dead family members and this relationship there and so there's ways in which Psycho connects to both of those movies as yes. certain types of evolutions of certain facets and that's why I struggle with in a retrospective way Norman Bates's mother because it connects Closely to Buffalo Bill, who's clearly a problematic character, and it's because that character is clearly um, supposed to, if not be a transgender person, then to give us fears of that kind of otherness. And, yeah, I don't and dis- For many people, that's a very problematic. Yeah, lifestyle. I don't.
1: I don't disagree with you there. Um, what I will say is that we have in history seen serial killers who have dressed in their victims' clothing. Mm-hmm. Their victims primarily being women. In a not because so, but, they so it's want more of a political
0: to, implication though.
1: Yes, not necessarily because they want to transition genders. It's it's a sense of of need for closeness to the experience of that person that they killed. Generally right. speaking, um, so it's 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 almost it's 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 very gross and unsettling in the sense that they basically want to be in that person that they, they that they have essentially consumed. Mm-hmm. Whereas, of course, in Buffalo Bill, it's, it's much more problematic because there is sort of an implication that he's murdering because he wants to be a woman, yeah. which is obviously terrible and not a thing that happens. And it's, there is sort of a sense in that narrative that is supposed to make you fear the otherness of essentially a transgender or non-binary person, which is absolutely problematic. And unfortunate, because if they had have gone in that more like I'm trying to become this person and consume them in the way that a serial killer would, it would be much more frightening, in my opinion, because there's there's something very upsetting about taking someone's life and just wanting to consume every aspect of that person, not necessarily by eating them, but by like taking away their personhood. Piece by piece. I've killed you and now I'm going to take your image away from you. Mm-hmm. You don't even get that in your death. And that's much more upsetting to me. That's much more frightening.
0: Yeah. Well, you can see Hannibal as being a different reflection of that yes, same impulse.
1: absolutely. And and Hannibal, in a lot of ways, I mean, remove the sexual element from it. There's a lot of similarities between um, a Hannibal and say a Dahmer, who who did a very similar thing. Dahmer would murder people and physically consume them. He mm-hmm. was a cannibal. Um, and there's been multiple serial killers or attempted serial killers who've murdered one person, eaten them with the intention of murdering others, but were caught too soon. And it is very much about continuing to enjoy the process of murdering that person by consuming them. Mm you know by by taking every piece of them so there's nothing left. We've just really got into my knowledge of serial killers. People are going to yeah. be really afraid of me <laughs> no. after listening to this.
0: I think it was very interesting. <laughs> um, but
1: no I I think I think there's a lot that you can do with the way that Hollywood portrays serial killers and the psychology behind serial killing. Yeah. Like there's a lot to discuss there and there's a lot of movies you can take as an example. Yeah, there's there's a lot of conversations to have because you see different aspects of Hannibal. I would say the best one, like if you really want that buttoned up sort of serial killer vibe and you want to see the early Hannibal would be the television show Hannibal. Oh yeah, that was um, really cool. It's cool and, and you're seeing, it's Hugh Dancy's version, but it's the same characters in Red Dragon or Manhunter. Mm. The agent in that who's played in Red Dragon by Edward Norton and in Manhunter by the guy who plays Gil Grissom in CSI can't remember his name. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But it's the same character in Hannibal. That's who Hugh Dancy is playing. I think they went in an odd direction with that character. But Mads Mikkelsen as Hannibal was phenomenal. Yeah. Was exceptional. And you do get to see some of that de-evolution throughout the story that I think is really necessary to understand that he isn't perfect. He isn't perfectly meticulous. That it is a facade that he puts on to sort of distract your attention. From him as a possible suspect. And he uses his understanding of psychology. To sort of warp the mind of anybody around him who might suspect him. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much that he is the perfect psychopath. He is the perfect serial killer. He has no empathy. It's it's really none of those things. He has low empathy for sure. But he cares about Hugh Dancy's character. He cares about Clarice. There is an element of fixation. And obsession with them but there is an element of caring it's just twisted and warped yeah so instead of killing them which he had every opportunity to do especially with Ed Norton's character in Red Dragon instead of doing that he puts it off to the last possible moment because he he in his warped and twisted way does care about them and that is his ultimate downfall and that's that's why he becomes so easily caught they start throwing suspicion at him and he he can't for the life of him bring himself to kill them so he becomes more frantic right. in the way that he goes about his murders to try and throw off attention and then eventually all hope is lost but he still fails at killing this character.
0: Yeah, I think for me what's what's important in like what makes me really love a lot of these movies and why these are the references that come to mind is because I can reflect and see certain psychological ideas or societal ideas being reflected in them and for other movies where it's a lot about the fun or the special effects i have a tougher time but i like this journey of connecting to the things and that journey does involve certain looks at the really disturbing parts of psychology that might not be always politically correct or always easily assimilated into our ideas and you know There's something... Whenever I... I think it's Jeffrey Dahmer who was the the, the serial killer who was gay and had gay lovers and... Yes. And there's always something that disturbs me when I see someone like that talking about because it's like there's certain people who might use that fact to bring up them in particular more often than others to be like... Right? And so there's always a measure of that involved in any conversation. And so it's important to bring those measures up when we're talking about a Buffalo Bill character, when we're talking about these things. For sure. Even though... Those psychological things might be true of some people in our, yeah. in our society. And, I
1: mean, I think it's important to understand that with like a Dahmer or a Gacy, their sexuality really didn't have anything to do with their proclivity to murder people yes. beyond the choice of people they murdered, right? So they chose people that they were, that they had a sexual attraction to, but that sexual attraction was not why they murdered them. They murdered them because they wanted to kill people. Like Dahmer ate people because he was mentally ill and a murderer. Mm -hmm. So he ate people and murdered them. Gacy was a married man with children, but he murdered and removed the skin of young boys. And Mm -hmm. he had sexual relationships with these young boys, many of whom were his employees at, I think it was like a chicken shack or something. He owned several chicken shacks. But the sexuality had nothing to do with the murdering beyond the type of victim his victimology that was it and the same can be said for like richard ramirez or ted bundy who ted bundy primarily chose women who looked like his Mm ex-fiance they were surrogates for his ex-fiance who was truly who he had a sort of vengeance or an anger or a pain towards and wanted to kill but by killing her he would be removing her entirely from his life so instead he killed surrogates
0: you know i don't know how to say this point exactly but statistically, there is so many serial killers who are just straight white men. and It
1: is primarily... There's, there have been some who are people of color. Obviously, Richard Ramirez. The Atlanta child murderer is believed... I don't think they ever officially charged or convicted anybody, but is believed to be a black man in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. There, there have been a few, but the majority of serial killers are straight white men, typically between the ages of 30 and 50. Yeah. There's obviously variants for that, like Bruce MacArthur in Toronto, who's recently convicted for the Toronto Gay Village murders, was, I think, 67 when he was finally convicted. But Mm -hmm. they believe he started killing in the 70s or 80s. Right. Which would be more in line with that sort of time period where he would have been in his late 20s, early 30s, which is typically when you see a serial killer start killing. And there have been female serial killers, too, but few and far between. The only one I can really think of off the top of my head is Eileen Wernos the majority of other female serial killers are part of a partnership. So it's one man and one woman who kill together. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a dominant and a submissive personality in that dynamic.
0: So now that we've got our history of psychopaths and uh, serial killers all sorted out.
1: Lydia watches (laughs) true crime.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Surrounded by true crime books here.
1: Not surrounded. There's a couple. They're mostly over there. There's an Anne Rice over there. I think Mindhunter might be on that shelf (laughs) over there. Oh, there's BTK book over there, too. I forgot about that one.
0: <laughs> yeah, in, in case it was at all, I thought Psycho is an excellent movie, mm-hmm. um, even though we have our reservations of Hitchcock as a director. And, oh, and yeah.
1: Hitchcock's that? a terrible, terrible, terrible human being. I mean, in, like the iconic, iconic Jennifer Lee scream when she is murdered in the bathtub. Everybody right. knows that scene. He was able to elicit that shot after multiple takes by rapidly changing the water that was spraying down from the shower head from ice cold to boiling hot until she screamed exactly the way that she wanted, so th- the way that he wanted. So it was going from boiling her skin to freezing her nerves until she screamed the way he wanted her to scream. Yeah, and then if you look at birds... It's ridiculous that
0: anyone can yeah, get away with that kind of stuff. It, I
1: mean, it was the 60s. Nobody gave a shit.
0: But, um, no, I mean there's there's Kubrick and other directors. Oh God, what on, he did to Mary
1: thing. Shelley is just like fucking repugnant. Um, but again, like you look at birds, like I mentioned with Tippi Hedren, he threw live birds at her. Yeah, live birds, which is both cruel to the birds and to poor Tippi Hedren. Um, and then we talked about Candyman, and you look mm-hmm. at Candyman. I can't think of who the director was, but there's both question of uh, the ethics of how those bees in Candyman were bred. But also, Virginia Madsen, who's the star of that movie, was hella allergic to bees, mm-hmm. and that movie has so many live bees in it. It's, She's just walking around unbol- needing like, an epipen I, I, every fifteen fucking minutes, and Tony Todd has live bees in his mouth. The movie's a mess.
0: I think one thing that it's hard for me to come to terms because I really enjoy art and whatnot, and I and I do sometimes justify my own watching of art, even though I know some of these bad things are happening here but just like when we critique capitalists for being like you can't get away with evil stuff just because it gets you more profit yeah we should say art is not worth torturing people to to create you know yes there there must be ethical consideration just like with science we have an ethics board of what science you can do and what art should you you cannot put a person who's allergic to bees in front of bees for for the sake of a movie yeah it's just (laughs) no i
1: agree i agree and like I mean, I would say that that question of ethics and morals when it comes to creating art is is being defined a little bit more. I mean, there's definitely still terrible things happening on film sets constantly, of course, but there's a little bit less. Like I think today, if you, I mean, I, they are remaking Candy, or they're making a new sequel to Candyman with Jordan Peele and Nia Costa, Nia DaCosta. Um, But like, you're not gonna have live bees and a lead actor with a fucking deathly bee allergy like that's just that's not gonna happen nearly as easily as it Mm -hmm. would have when Candyman was created in I think the 80s um and it's the same with with Mary Shelley in I mean Kubrick's still a piece of shit but Mary Shelley in The Shining that kind of psychological trauma is just would be so much more difficult to do to a person and not have significant damage to your career I feel mm. um if it came out to the limelight like people talk about that Mary Shelley thing immediately after it happened and they're like oh but look at the beauty in the art like he got an amazing performance out of her and now people discuss it and they're like that's horrific as yeah. like he borderline ruined that woman's life and she was an exceptional actress so I don't know I don't know I mean I, I know that there's still question of ethics in films there's still terrible things that happen the things that happen to Megan Fox throughout her career like Megan Fox is only I think maybe 36 at her oldest and she had to deal with significant abuses over the last 15-20 years max and that's horrific and never should have happened and I, I would say the majority of the public purported the terrible things that were brought out about her reputation and defamed her in a way that was never deserved because she was quite a talented actor. She was in terrible movies, but she was in some incredible ones as well, like Jennifer's Body, that didn't get the respect it deserved.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Jennifer's Body, and I will say this every day, walked so that movies like In the House of the Devil, It Follows, so those movies could run. Like, uh-huh. Teeth and Jennifer's Body existed, so feminist pieces, oh, Midsummer's is the other one I'm thinking uh-huh. of. Things like Midsummer, The Witch, It Follows, and In the House of the Devil. And there's this very strong feminist narrative that is so similar to films like teeth and it follow or teeth and um, Jennifer's body Body, that I just don't think would have made it into these types of mainstream horror films as easily or horror films that have become basically art house films as easily if those movies hadn't existed previously.
0: Mm -hmm. Any final thoughts on Psycho?
1: I mean, I love Hitchcock. As problematic as he is, I love Hitchcock movies. I love the pacing of them. Yes. The cinematography is beautiful. And I love that so much of it takes place in small spaces. Mm -hmm. I think that's my favorite thing about Hitchcock stylistically, is that it's really very much about the unease and dialogue and the small confined spaces in which these characters find themselves, whether it's in the house or in the motel room or in that small office space. When you think of something like rear window, he's basically just confined to his bedroom and looking in Mm -hmm. on his neighbors. Like all of those types of things just work really well for me and create a lot of tension very Mm -hmm. quickly while keeping the pacing at a slow burn. So it's a very interesting dynamic for me, you know, like the movie is slow moving, but the tension is quite high at all times and I don't think I can think of another film that does that quite as effectively for me. Hmm. Or another director that can pull that off quite as effectively for me.
0: Yeah, there's something about the mood that, I, like, one of the things that I love so much is plot twists. And even though I knew the plot twists basically in this one, there's still the mood remains with you. And for sure. so many things Definitely. with plot twists, they are worth a second watch often because you get to see how everything was placed so the plot just works or whether or whether it does or not but after that second watch there's truly no more reason because it's so it's usually so much just about the plot and that you notice the characters and the further messages aren't mm-hmm. really there unfortunately yeah. even though I love that feeling of the initial plot twist so much yeah do we have an outro
1: <laughs> I mean yeah i i just want to say like we both really love psycho yep yeah. i cinematically I'd say it's a 10 out of 10 but Mm. as far as overall for like everything I love about a film like an eight really overall eight
0: I no, I I'm I'm up there I'm like nine at least I I think she's such a well-made movie it might just it
1: it might just be because of how many times I've seen it yeah yeah I, I would give it an eight it's the pacing is great the cinematography is amazing the characters are wonderful and I I do love the feel of like a 60s like black and white movie but again i think i think because it's a 60s black and white movie it is it is very much like there is a sense of that time period and there are certain aspects of that that kind of pull me out of it a little mm-hmm. bit so i think that's why i would give it more of an eight mm-hmm. yeah overall we both loved it yeah and um thank you for listening you can follow us on twitter at, at @fanslabpod. pod expect uh, new episodes roughly every two weeks we're usually pretty good yeah um and feel free to dm us if you or or you know add us if you have any ideas of movies we should watch next
0: can't wait to see you next time
1: bye Bye.